You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Okay, so let's look at this quote on page two. It's in big, bold print. Everybody see what I'm talking about? In the, yes, yes, it's that one. No, 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 too far. Um, so, okay, if you, you have the packets, right? Here's the front page that says this. Then you flip it over. There's nothing on the back of that. Then you get to this page. That's page one. And then on the back of that page is page two. Okay, if you don't have it, then just share it with the person next to you. It's okay. If you don't have it, then just share it with the person next to you. It's okay. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel um, is. Um, He's not my favorite. He's certainly in my constellation of uh, favorite Jewish thinkers and uh, philosophers. Franklin, would you wouldn't mind uh, keeping that? Uh, uh, I get like very hot. Um, thanks. Um, yeah. Um, it was like at 73 or something like that. Um, so. Uh, um, so Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel was uh, is uh, in my. Uh, constellation of uh, favorite Jewish thinkers. He lived in um, the second half of the uh, 20th century, um, was uh, um, uh, rescued, was, was from a very early age, uh, noted from, for in, in, uh, in, in Poland for his, uh, for his uh, brilliance and scholarship in a traditional Hasidic family, um, and ended up, uh, um, at, after be, becoming a uh, um, Ordained uh, classically as a as a rabbi, uh, studying in a university in uh, Berlin, uh, philosophy uh, became a uh, very well regarded and renowned philosopher um, at the uh, um, at the onset of World War II, and was uh, rescued by um, the Hebrew Union College, which is uh, the Reform um, uh, the Reform Seminary in uh, at that point in uh, Cincinnati. I still have a campus in Cincinnati. That's where it was. He was rescued by by them uh, in uh, um, really 1938 or 1939 um, and brought to America. Um, so so uh, saved from probably death and destruction in the Holocaust. Um, and very fortunately for uh, for the rest of Jewish history, because he became. Um, a leading voice in Jewish thought um, in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, and became uh, not only one of the preeminent Jewish thinkers of his time, and the quote that we're um, going to look at in just a second is from his book, God in Search of Man, which is his sort of uh, magnum opus, um, but, uh, but also became very widely known for his uh, activism um, and for, for his... Uh, um, uh, support of uh, social issues and social causes from a decidedly Jewish standpoint, right? So he marched with Martin Luther King in Selma and was very vocal and active in the civil rights movement in the 60s and in the uh, anti-Vietnam movement in the 70s. Um, and he would do so very consciously and deliberately as an expression, extension of his Jewish values. So both from a uh, from an intellectual perspective and from a uh, from an accomplishment perspective, um, uh, he is uh, really up there in terms of uh, of uh, 
um, Jewish thinkers, especially in the modern age. And uh, the opening, this is really the opening words of his book, God in Search of Man. And if you just think about that title for a second, right, it's a somewhat, something that's a surprising title, right? God in Search of Man. But in that, and, we'll, and I'll get to this in just a moment, I, I think that he is absolutely right um, about the essence of what the Bible is about. The Bible is about God in search of man, or you know, humanity, I should say. Right? He was living in a time where, grammatically, you would use man instead of humanity. That was before feminism. But um, so, um, so he said his philosophy of Judaism was that it was about God in search of man. Okay, and here's what he said at the opening of the book: brilliant uh, and really radical lines. Okay. It's customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion only speaks in the name of authority rather with, than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. Religion is an answer to man's ultimate questions. The moment we become oblivious to ultimate questions, religion becomes irrelevant and its crisis sets in. The primary task of religion is rediscovering the questions to which religion is an answer. So that, I think, is a, is a, a, a worthy introduction to talking about the story of, uh, of, of the Bible, the story of the Torah. Because um, if you think about the Torah, which, are, uh, which is a technical, a Jewish technical term for um, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The term Torah, by the way, can also refer, more broadly speaking, to the whole kind of canon of Jewish sacred literature, of which there's more than just those first five books. But in a very specific sense, when people say the Torah, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible. When people talk about a Torah scroll, which you might find in a, in the, in a synagogue like ours, we have several of them, um, it's a scroll containing... Uh, the text of those five books. Okay, so that's that's the Torah, um, and Heschel, I think, hits it at its core that the, that the Torah is an attempt to answer the ultimate questions of humanity. So you need to do two things then in thinking about the Torah. First is you need to think for a moment about what are the deep questions that human beings ask themselves and other people. So what are, the, what are the deepest questions that people can ask? Why are we here? Good. How did we get here, right? How were we here and why are we here? Say that louder. Right, right. What am I supposed to be doing here? Yeah. Uh, purpose, okay, good. Other thoughts? Ah, uh, good. What happens after we die, right? And maybe an additional question, why do we die in the first place, right? Why don't we just live forever? Great. Other questions, other, other deep questions that we ask. Why are we born? Why are we born? 
Yeah, why are we born? Good, good. Why do bad things happen, right? And I'll make that even a little harder, right? Why do bad things happen to good people, right? And why do good things happen to bad people, right? Yes, perfect, great. Great, where did the universe come from, right? Who or what created the universe? Do we have choice? Ah, do we have choice? Are we, are we uh, um, conscious agents, right? Do we, uh, do, we, do we have freedom? Or is everything predetermined by fate or by some other cosmic force? Ah, good, right? Why is, there, why is there injustice, right? Why is there inequality? Why do some prosper and others perish? Great. Thoughts? Yeah. How am I connected to my neighbor? How am I, am I connected to my neighbor? That's maybe the first question, but if I am, how? Great, right? And there's an additional, right? What responsibilities do I have of my, to my neighbor, right? If any, right? And, um, and what responsibilities does my neighbor have to me, if any, right? Um, what rights do I have vis-a-vis -vis my neighbor uh, versus what rights they have vis-a-vis -vis me? And, um, and, and where uh, is it, are there ever times where um, the responsibilities and rights clash, right? Great, right? I mean, these are, these are the deep questions, right? And so if you think about those questions that, that you know, when we, when we have quiet, we ask ourselves that are actually at the core of the, of the human drama, that's what the, that's what the Torah is trying to get at. Now, it answers it in the form primarily of story, which is interesting, right? In some senses, it answers it by way of law, but the law is brought about in the context of, of story. But the truth of the matter is, um, a, a postmodern philosopher named Jacques Derrida said, nothing exists outside of the text. Right? So that means that um, on a certain level, everything in our lives is constructed through narrative. Right? We, this is actually true from a very early age psychologically. The way you produce healthy children, um, uh, productive adults, is by um, constructing and explaining the narrative of their lives. Right? So if you have a, um, if you have a kid that you know, um, breaks their arm, you know, three years old and they break their arm, the way you create a healthy outcome for, aside from putting it in the cast, the way you psychologically create a healthy outcome from that traumatic experience is by constructing a narrative about what happened. Right? That's what we do. That's what human beings do. Nothing exists outside the text. We all are living in the drama of our own stories, and we all construct stories about our own lives too. Right? Um, some, for some of us, we're the heroes of our own story. For some of us, we're the victims of our own story. We often cling to our narratives with, with a lot of ferocity, but that's the essence of it. Right? Human beings, the way we try to answer those questions often is through story. And sometimes... The best answers to those questions come through narrative, right? So um, in, the, in Harold Kusher's book, he, he, he says something to the effect of, when I was a kid, I used to go to the movies, and before the movie, you would get the newsreel and the cartoon. 
And on a certain level, the newsreel was telling fact and the cartoon was telling fiction. But if the cartoon was good, it would actually tell truths that were deeper than whatever was being told by the newsreel. Right? So that's, that's, the, that's the Bible. That's the Torah. The Torah is an attempt to construct a narrative that helps to answer those deep questions of human existence. So what's the story? The story is that there is ultimately, at the core of reality, one. We emerge, everything emerges from a singularity, right? The Bible, the Torah calls that oneness God, right? And says that God, the one, at the beginning of time, begins to create the heavens and the earth, right? So the one emerges, erupts into, uh, into the many, into multiplicity, creates an orderly and, uh, and, and refined cosmos, um, creates all of existence and life as we know it, right? Um, creates all of, the, uh, all of the oceans and skies and uh, trees and plants and grass, animals in the sea, animals in the land, animals in the air, and then says to the animals, let us create a being in our image, according to our likeness. Creating a, uh, a being known as a human, although the, what's really interesting is that the term that's used for human being at the creation of the world in, in the Torah is Adam which is the Hebrew word, uh, Hebrew root for two different but related words. Um, Adam is uh, the color red, Adon, uh, which is blood. Dam is blood in Hebrew. And Adama, ground, earth, right? So, in, so some people have tried to translate the, in term, instead of human, earthling, right, is what we are, right? So the, the, just in that beginning story, and if you were here over the summer, we spent a whole session unpacking um, that opening chapter of Genesis to talk about like what are the what are the lessons it draws out. But from the opening chapters of that story, it it tells you a lot about the. Um, uh, if you go back and say what are the questions that animate a story like that, you hit a lot of them. Right? Why are we here? Where did we come from? What's our purpose of being here? What responsibilities I have? What's my relationship to my neighbor? What responsibilities do I have to my neighbor? Right? You get a lot of that in that story. So where do we come from? We come from oneness. Why does that matter? Because it means that on a fundamental level, all of us are connected and all of us are, uh, are, are part of an overarching oneness. So if I say, how do I relate to my neighbor? On a fundamental level, I actually am no different from my neighbor. On a fundamental level, my neighbor and I are one together. So I have a lot of responsibility to my neighbor. And not only to my neighbor, but to the trees in my neighbor's yard. And to the dirt on my neighbor's property. And to the river that's behind my neighbor's house. Right? We have a profound responsibility to all of that, according to the opening chapters of Genesis. And if you think in addition about the, the worldview that the Bible was responding to, it's also profound because the Bible is actually a polemic. It's not only a, an, an attempt out of nothing to address man's ultimate questions. It's saying that there are lots of other answers out there 
and I disagree with those answers. So the answers that were floating around at the time of the Bible were primarily devoted to an idea that the, um, that the world was created out of many, right? Which is actually a pretty simple explanation. There's a lot of diversity in our world. It seems pretty, uh, like a pretty clear logical jump to say that many powerful forces created the many diverse kinds of life that there is in the world and the diversity in the universe, right? Um, but the moral implications of that uh, are radically different, I think, than saying that the world came from um, a singular God, from a singularity, from, uh, from radical oneness. But those stories existed. I mean, they predated the Bible. Um, so the, you know, the, uh, um, one of the most famous or two of the most famous that, uh, that, that exist. If you took a you know, world literature course in, in college, you probably read the, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish, right, that talk about these stories um, that if you look at them closely parallel with the Bible, they, um, uh, you can see exactly how the Bible is responding to those stories. And those are the stories that our ancient ancestors as Jews and really all of humanity those were, those were our stories. Those were our stories, um, which not coincidentally helps explain why the world from which the Bible emerged, which we'll talk a little bit about next week, the world from which the Bible emerged was a violent and chaotic world because people were nurtured and grew up on those stories. So what's our purpose for being here? The, the Enuma Elish says our purpose for being here is to feed the gods. So everything else you do doesn't really matter. As long as you make the gods happy, doesn't really matter. Making the gods happy isn't with like your moral behavior. Making the gods happy is with the sacrifices you bring. Right? So whatever else you do, it doesn't really matter. And the gods are pretty capricious and arbitrary in that system. So nothing you ever build, nothing you ever do, really is of ultimate import, really is lasting, because it's all dependent on what the whether the gods want to squish you or not, or, or, or knock you down. My teacher, Rabbi Ed Feinstein, in, says it this way. He says, in that worldview, we're all children building sandcastles at the seashore. Right? You build the castle, the wave comes and knocks it down. At a certain point, you start feeling like, what's the point of building a sandcastle? I might as well just go get drunk at the bar. Right? If you're a child, you probably but anyway, <laughs> okay, so, so that's the story, right, of, uh, of the opening chapters of Genesis, that God creates um, uh, a world and within it creates human beings that have the, that have the distinction among the other animals of creation um, of having the capacity uh, to, uh, to make moral decisions, of telling right from wrong. Of, uh, of, of, well, let me actually phrase it this way, not necessarily telling right from wrong, but having freedom, having free choice. So if you, someone said, you know, are, 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 we, are we free, right? The, the authors of Genesis um, clearly believe that human beings are fundamentally free because God places this first earthling um, and uh, the first two earthlings in, the, in, in a garden and says you can eat of any tree in the garden, uh, and in particular you might like the tree of life, but there's one tree of the garden that you can't eat, that you may not eat from, the, tr the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is a very rich story, we can't really unpack the whole thing. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, and the first human beings make a choice. Right? Now, if, if this is a world in which God 
knows every choice that a human being is going to make before that human being makes it. Or even higher than that, controls every choice that a human being is going to make before he's going to make it, then the opening chapters of Genesis make no sense. Right? This is a book in which the proposition is human beings are free to choose whichever path in life they want. And God is surprised and continues throughout the rest of the Torah from time to time to be surprised, not always for good, by human behavior. Right? So the first humans are told not to eat from the uh, uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. They do. Um, the consequence of which is that they are expelled from the Garden of Eden um, and uh, are robbed of immortality. Right? So if you think back to the question, why, why do we die? Right? Um, according to that narrative, we die because of moral choice. Right? Um, because um, an infinite being uh, doesn't have the capacity for moral choice. Only a, only a finite being has the capacity for moral choice and for consequences to that moral choice. And what we learn from, uh, from uh, following that story is that the descendants of those early human beings are not always particularly nice people, um, which is a consequence of human freedom. Right? So we have the capacity to choose to do right and the capacity to choose to do wrong. Um, God gives some instruction to those early humans, um, uh, but, uh, but, but time and again, um, the earliest human beings, even though they are all um, intimately related to each other in a very um, acute sense, right? Not only that, in a theoretical sense, we all come from oneness, right? Cain and Abel are literally brothers, and yet Cain bashes Abel's brains in, right? Um, a consequence of, of human freedom. So um, what you have in, in Genesis are basically 10 generations of human beings um, sinking further and further into um, moral quagmires of their own making, creating a world of lawlessness and violence and injustice and corruption. And so God, who is, again, um, uh, continually surprised by human behavior and therefore can be disappointed by human behavior and is not in control of human behavior says, okay, I didn't really do a good job with this world. So I'm going to create a new world and the way I'm going to do it to ensure that, uh, that, that people make good choices, I'm going to start, instead of building my own person, I'm going to start with one good person and I'll make that person the progenitor of, uh, of, of, of humanity. So God sends a flood uh, and uh, wipes out the world, but uh, tells one person named Noah, who is uh, known to be a righteous and blameless person in his time, uh, to build an ark and ride out the flood, save the animals because the animals didn't do anything wrong, right? They didn't make moral choices that uh, led to the decay of, of society, um, and God saves Noah. But Noah also turns out to be something of a disappointment um, at the end of the day. Um, so Noah's Noah's uh, uh, children last for 10 generations, and the world becomes as it was uh, before the flood, more or less. So, um, Harold Kushner puts it this way, that, uh, that, that the third time around, God tries a different tactic. He tries to, to, to um, create a model society for behavior, knowing that, um, that, that humanity doesn't work very well in, the, in, in theoretical, right? Uh, and works very well with seeing examples of positive behavior, but, uh, but it's very hard if you are living among 
all sorts of people who are doing all sorts of things wrong, your chances are good that you are going to be just like your neighbors. But if there's one group of people that, um, that we can create a pilot program, right, of what the world should look like or could look like, right, what society could look like, that everybody can say, okay, you know, my neighbor may be acting this way, but here's the possibility of what a society could look like, a model community, right? And then maybe I can convince my neighbors to help us build that community as well. So God finds a person named Abraham, actually at the time named Abram, who lived uh, in uh, Mesopotamia, and uh, tells him to leave everything behind. Leave your father's house, leave your homeland, leave everything you know, and go to the land that I will show you. Uh, and from there, um, you will be a blessing, and all of the nations of the earth will bless themselves by you. So think about that, right? So that, that gets to the core of what Kushner is saying. All the nations of the earth will bless themselves by you, meaning through you and your descendants, this community that you're going to create and lead, right? All of the nations of the earth will see it and say, ah, that's the way we should be living too. Not necessarily that we everybody should be Jewish, right? Everybody should have the particular customs and practices that, uh, that Abraham and his descendants are going to have, but that everybody can see what a moral society might look like. No, that doesn't mean that, that Jews ever really got it right. That just means that that was the project, right? That was the theory. Um, so, uh, so um, I mean, and, and think about this, you know, uh, um, which is uh, really astounding to me, is that um, I've been thinking a lot about um, a guy named David Dwight, who's the uh, past senior pastor of Hope Church um, in Goochland. And he gave a sermon um, which I listened to his sermons when I run, but I met him the other day. He's a really great guy. Um, so he gave a sermon um, a, a, a few months ago about Abraham uh, titled, um, Go and I Will Show You. Right? And most of us live our lives um, the exact opposite way. Right? Like, show me exactly how it's going to turn out first. Tell me what all the outcomes are going to be, and then maybe I'll consider it, right? So Abraham is told by God, go and then I'll show you. And Abraham says, sure, right? So, um, so lots of people ask, you know, why, you know, why does God choose Abraham? And, and there's a, a great um, category of Jewish literature called Midrash, um, which uh, is sort of like um, rabbi fan fiction. Right? So it's, it's the people who read the Bible and said, like, like, ooh, these are good characters and these are good stories. Like, like what if we put them in this situation, you know, or whatever, right? So, um, so that's what Midrash more or less is. It's an attempt to kind of um, uh, read between the lines of the Bible and fill in missing information, et cetera. So, you know, so the question emerges, you know, why, God, why does God choose Abraham? And so the rabbis come up with all sorts of explanations, one of which is that Abraham, uniquely from the other members of his society, was able to intuit that uh, there was actually only one God when everybody else was worshiping many gods. Um, and uh, that Abraham was uh, not so much chosen by God, but was the only one who figured it out, right? Um, maybe. Uh, uh, Kushner suggests, and I, and I think this is a really beautiful um, explanation, is that um, it's really hard to explain why someone falls in love with somebody. Right? And the, 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 the truth is that God fell in love with Abraham. Um, that doesn't mean that God didn't fall in love with lots of other people. Uh, but the Bible, the Torah, I mean, tells the love story of God and Abraham. And by extension, I mean, the whole thing, I mean, that's actually um, a, a nice way of thinking about the Torah altogether, 
is that you know we mentioned that the, the Torah constructs a story to answer the deepest questions of humanity. The story is a love story. Right? Why does God create the world? Think about that. That's I mean you know you have a um, not maybe not necessarily all powerful but an extraordinarily powerful uh, uh, being. Um, uh, you know, what, what need does God have for creating the universe? And the best answer that the, I think the Torah and that later Jewish tradition gives is that God was lonely. God loved the possibility of a world and humanity. Um, Rabbi Art Green, who's one of today's, I think, leading um, uh, Jewish theologians, um, uh, says it this way, um, and I actually need to, to read this to, uh, to be able to really communicate um, uh, how beautiful this is. So, says, to say it differently, the testimony that God is one requires the presence of another. Okay? Um, so, for anything to exist to, um, uh, um, as, a, as a single solitary entity, it actually can't be a single solitary entity unless there's an other to be able to um, reflect back on it that it's a single solitary entity. Otherwise, it's actually infinity, and that's tantamount to nothing, right? Um, so, uh, so it, but that's true of all of us, right? So, um, uh, the, I mean, I'm watching this with my own daughter, who's, who's two, and the way she... Um, uh, like the, her development is from a world in which basically like like she and mommy are totally bound up and interconnected to now increasingly a world in which she is a differentiated person from uh, her mother right and from her father like said although I'm not really that important yet um, <laughs> right, um, uh, right. Um, so the so the the um, um, uh, part of what it means to be human is to um, um, is to notice and realize the um, um, the the differentiation that we have from other people, and we get to know ourselves primarily through interacting with and experiencing another person. Right. So God actually doesn't really know anything about God's self until there is humanity to interact with God. It's sort of a brain bender if you think about it, but that's the truth. And so, um, and, and what it also means is that, um, let's say that God is all powerful, okay? But for humanity to exist and for humanity to have freedom, God has to give up at least some of God's power because an all powerful being can't enable free creatures, right? It's impossible logically. Um, so, um, so what? The, so think about that. The why does God need to create humanity? And even more than that, God has to give up so much of God's self in order to create humanity. And the only possible reason for that, the only logical reason for that, could be that God loved. God created humanity because God loved. So that is, I think, you know. So why are we here? The Torah's answer: We're here because of love. Well, why is there a Jewish people? Jewish people are here because of love. Why is there a, a Muslim people, a Christian people, which, uh, from the Torah's perspective, all are descendants of Abraham? Really, most of the families of Earth that uh, exist now, maybe all the families of Earth that exist now, 
are descendants in one way or another of Abraham. Why do any of those people exist? Because of love. So God chooses Abraham to um, start uh, a, a, a new community that is going to be a model for, um, uh, for moral behavior and for a righteous society. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a drama of Abraham and his family in the, in, in the book of Genesis. It's a very dramatic family story. Uh, very dysfunctional in some ways family story, which, by the way, I mean, it's an interesting story, right? The sacred literature of the Jewish people tells about the dysfunctional family life of the earliest Jews, right? That's what it focuses on, right? So, first of all, right, uh, um, Jews have as much dysfunction in their families, maybe more so than anybody else, right? So that, that, uh, that she goes to show you that Judaism isn't a catch-all for uh, familial dysfunction. But also, it, uh, it, it's a reminder. Someone asked me, we were talking, um, I, one of my classes this summer, um, was, we were doing a case study in some ways of Moses. And Moses is a very flawed character. Christian Bale, who's playing Moses in an upcoming movie, uh, was quoted today saying that he believed that Moses was one of the most barbaric individuals he had ever encountered in literature and probably a schizophrenic. Christian Bale, thanks. So, um, uh, the noted biblical scholar, Christian Bale. Um, so, um, um, but at the very least, Moses is a deeply complicated and flawed character in the Bible, right? As is Abraham, as is Abraham's son Isaac, as is Abraham's wife Sarah, um, Abraham's uh, second wife Hagar, their child Ishmael, um, Isaac's wife Rebecca, um, their children uh, Jacob and Asaph. These are all complex and complicated and flawed, right? The, if you look at the bloodline of the Jewish people, um, especially through Jacob, um, Jacob is maybe one of the most morally problematic characters in all of the Bible, right? And yet, that is the great-great-grandfather of the Jewish people. Why? To say that, first of all, this enterprise of Judaism um, isn't perfect. It isn't a fix-all for all of a community's or humanity's problems. It's an attempt, it's a try, but some human flaws are deeply rooted and deeply ingrained in, in, in our character. That doesn't mean we don't have choice. Um, Maimonides, a later Jewish scholar, says, um, never believe what lots of people in the world believe that our um, essence, our character, is ingrained in us from birth and that ultimately then we have no choice. You have the capacity to be as, um, as righteous or as wicked as you choose to be, except that um, we do have, and we know this even more so now because of the uh, psychology and, and, uh, and, and studies of, of brain chemistry and things like that, we know that we have deeply ingrained natures, right? That doesn't mean we don't have freedom. It just means that for some of us, the exercise of that freedom is, and depending on what we want to do with it, is substantially harder than it is maybe for other people. I mean, everybody has struggles in the exercise of their freedom, making the right choices, things like that. Just everybody has different struggles, right? So the Bible tries to present real characters to say that the progenitors of our faith are not perfect people by any stretch of the imagination, and that's exactly right, because none of us are either. And so we see the models for struggle and growth in our ancestors. And we hope to learn from their failures as well as well as their successes in constructing our own life of faith for ourselves. So uh, Jacob, the grandchild of uh, Abraham, the grandson of Abraham, um, has 12 sons. 
um, who themselves have a very dysfunctional family life. Um, uh, so much so that uh, 11 of the sons uh, want plot to kill one of the other sons. Eventually they're talked down from that ledge and just sell him into slavery. So he gets sold down to slavery in Egypt uh, through a turn of events, becomes promoted to the, uh, to the second in command over all of Egypt. Um, and uh, uh, there's a famine in the land of Israel, uh, the land of Canaan, which is uh, um, now where the modern-day state of Israel is, if you uh, have a sense of the geography. That's the land that God promised to Abraham uh, when, when God told Abraham to go forth, um, that, that you'll create a people and that this will be your land. That makes sense because um, uh, uh, a, a, a people historically has always been uh, tied to a specific location, right? Babylonians came from Babylonia. Um, Egyptians came from Egypt, and they're tied to the land of Egypt, right? So, uh, so the Jews um, are an interesting people because they're, they're uh, unrooted from their place of origin and are planted in a, in a new place. Anyway, so Jacob and his sons, there's a famine in the land of Israel where they're living. They, they go down to the land of Egypt, which is the, one of the great powers of the time. They had, uh, through uh, Jacob's son, unbeknownst to Jacob, through his uh, cunning, uh, were able to store food for this terrible famine. Um, and, uh, and so the whole Gantz of Mishpacha goes down to Egypt and uh, um, uh, discover that uh, their brother, Jacob's son, Joseph, is still alive. Um, they reconcile and reunite. By the way, another great narrative theme of the Torah. Um, just take a step back from that point that I was about to make before I make it to say that one of uh, the great 20th century Jewish philosophers, a guy named Franz Rosenzweig, and uh, he wrote a book called The Star of Redemption. And uh, he kind of uh, took the Jewish star, which you can see you know, lining the walls of this room, um, a six-pointed star, and said um, that that six-pointed star is sort of a model for everything you need to know about Judaism. He said everything you need to know about Judaism is bound up in six different and interacting points. There is God, Torah, and Israel, the Jewish people, and creation, redemption, and revelation. God, Torah, and Israel, creation, redemption, and revelation, right? And on some level, if you think about, you know, so what's the story of the Torah? The story of the Torah is all of those things. The Torah is a story about God. The Torah is a story about the Torah, meaning it's a, it's a, sto it's a story that tells how the story was written, um, and the story of the Jewish people. And it's a story of creation, the creation of the world, it's a story of redemption, so why I brought that up, and, and of Revelation. We'll get to Revelation in a second. So why I bring up redemption is the, the story of Jacob's sons is a story of you know, creation, because J Jacob creates this family, but also of uh, a major breakdown um, in the dynamics of the family, uh, pain and suffering and strife and turmoil within the family, but ultimately the possibility of redemption. In the um, the twelve brothers end up reconciling in in Egypt. Um, Joseph, um, both sides in a lot of ways, um, because the the um, uh, other Joseph has to forgive his brothers for selling him into slavery, but the other brothers have to forgive Joseph for all of the years of uh, of, of terrible pain that he caused them when he was living with them. So here you have a great example of moving from this arc of creation and depravity, where you see that in the creation story in the opening chapters of Genesis to redemption, right? So you, you have that sort of flowing throughout. Um, 
the uh, um, so that's the that brings us to the end of Genesis. Before I move to Exodus, any questions? Okay. So yes. That's a good question. I mean, I think that um, uh, it, you know, even though we pr we paint this kind of like Greek philosophical facade on the character of God, the character of God in the in the Bible, and, the, and I think the Jewish conception of God is 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 much more uh, nuanced and supple and complicated than that. So I think that the God of the Bible um, not only learns new things, uh, but the only way, in some ways, of learning new things is by making mistakes. So um, God. Uh, you know, so um, um, I think that you know, wiping out all of humanity in a flood. Uh, I'm not sure if that in itself was a mistake, um, but it was God's attempt to uh, rectify uh, perceived mistakes that God had made uh, before that. Um, so, did God fail um, uh, humanity ever? Um, I think that a, a good argument could be made, right? Um, and I think that that argument can continue to be made. I mean, it's one of the ways in which. Um, people deal with the trauma and tragedy of the Holocaust um, is that, uh, um, uh, you know, on one level, it's a human failure uh, because, um, you know, uh, the, the, the Nazis were democratically elected and, uh, and, and exercised their free will to, uh, to, to uh, commit uh, uh, horrific brutalities. Um, but on another level, you can uh, see it if you if you think about it this way. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm inclined to think about it this way, um, but you can think about it as a, as a, as a failure on God's part, right? Of uh, of, of creating a world um, in which that sort of brutality is possible. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a fair question. Um, I'm not sure if I have a good answer to it, but I think it's a fair question. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so if you, um, it depends on how you want to read the, the Torah. If you take the Torah more or less at face value, it's hard to read it in any other way than to say that the God of the Torah is not all-knowing. Um, right? A God that uh, can, um, uh, uh, as, as you read in the, in the story of Noah, a God that um, uh, repents of having created humanity, right? is not a God that's all-knowing, right? Um, because a God that's all-knowing would know exactly how that's going to turn out or would have created a world in which the outcome was not going to be that way, right? Um, so it's, um, you, know, you see that throughout the, uh, the I mean, we'll get, to, we'll see in just in, in a second, in, in Exodus is really another good example, right? So um, uh, the, the, uh, the children of Israel, um, I'll just get into that story. So uh, after a couple of generations, after Joseph, a new king arises in Egypt that doesn't remember this uh, um, great leader, Joseph, uh, the, the, the Jew, and, um, and um, uh, sees that there's this uh, um, populous 
group of uh, immigrants living in, in Egypt and decides uh, that he doesn't like the fact that there are all these foreigners living there. Um, so uh, Hatch's plots first to, um, uh, first to uh, um, uh, um, enslave them. Um, and then when that doesn't uh, succeed in uh, um, uh, um, stopping the population boom of these ignorant uh, uh, immigrants, um, tries to uh, kill all of their uh, 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 baby boys. Um, and eventually, um, we, we read in, in, in Exodus that God hears, God hears the groaning of the Israelites from, the, from, uh, from amidst their oppressions and their labors, um, and God uh, takes note of them um, and, uh, and remembers God's covenant with Abraham. Okay? So a God that, um, that, uh, that has to be reminded that, uh, that uh, this nation is suffering under slavery in Egypt only by virtue of their crying, um, and then remembers, as if God forgot, um, the covenant that God made with Abraham, um, doesn't strike me as a God that is all-knowing. Um, now, you could make the argument, I think, in, other, in, in the other direction. Lots of people do. Uh, so the, the concept that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, um, uh, and all-present um, is really um, one of the um, gifts, but also the curses, I think, of, um, of Aristotelian and Platonic uh, uh, philosophy, um, uh, which, which posits that kind of God for, I think, very plausible uh, logical reading, reasons. And that view of God was very influential um, to uh, early Jewish thinkers or early um, rabbinic thinkers in, in the Greek world, um, and so uh, and, and and especially to early Christian thinkers um, who were um, many of them uh, very much a part of the Greek world, um, and so that um, that view of God was sort of stamped onto uh, Jewish tradition in a very early age. Um, and so it became a lens through which many people read the Bible. So then when you have that lens, then you have a problem when you encounter things like the flood story. And you have to then explain to yourself, well, how does a God who knows everything um, seem so surprised by this? And you have to go through kind of mental hoops to try to figure it out. You know, I think Abraham and Moisha, mm. you know, because when God went after the creation, Mankind came and, and the, the, first, the, call, the first couple, maybe five percent from the from the trio, mm -hmm. you know, eternal life or knowledge, and they people to go knowledge, and they they show volition. Right. And then and so it's not that God doesn't know everything, he knows everything, but he always allows human mankind you know, to, to ask to do their own right. volition. And, and for example, in the case of Israel, from a point of view, I think I think it was kind of a lot of communication between God and the people of Israel, even when they were in Egypt. Mm. So that's why the living country, going back again to, to the, you know, to, to the, to recognize that there were people from the, from the, the Egyptians, they began sending back to God, saying God listen again. But he, mm. but he was all the time, he knew all the time what, what was going on. Okay, maybe. Um, all right, so I, I have like four minutes left to get through the other four books of the Bible. So, um, <laughs> um, so here, here we go. Okay, um, so the uh, the Israelites are uh, enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, uh, God, we we discover um, abhors injustice and oppression, and so um, and so 
hatches a plot to um, lift the children of Israel from enslavement in Egypt. But the plot is not by uh, just, you know, God plucking them up and taking them, is through um, a, a human leader, a human agent, a guy named Moses. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh to, to take the children of Israel out of Egypt. Right? Again, what are the stories trying to teach us about, um, about, about humanity, about, about life, about the deepest questions? What's, what's our purpose for being here? Right? The story of the Exodus, right? we, um, God needs our partnership to make the world a better place. Right? There's that famous story of, uh, um, you know, the, um, uh, well, never mind, I'm not going to get into famous <laughs> stories now. So, uh, uh, so, right, God needs our partnership in order to make the world a better place. And the, the, the vision of the world that, the God, that uh, God wants us to create is one um, in which there's no subjugation, no enslavement, um, in, which, um, in which people are um, uh, fundamentally equal in which uh, the people who lord themselves over and are powerful are always brought low, and the people who are oppressed, the story of the oppressed is always that they're going to be um, uh, redeemed, right? Again, the story of creation to redemption, right? Um, There's degradation in between, but the story is always from degradation to redemption. Uh, So God sends Moses to redeem the Israelites from Egypt. Um, uh, Pharaoh, as all despots are, um, uh, is uh, is obstinate in the face of uh, of the call of justice, um, uh, but as Martin Luther King taught, the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. The end of the uh, of the Israelites is to be redeemed. They're re- redeemed from slavery. They're brought into uh, um, the wilderness um, uh, again for similar reasons that the Bible says they're um, enslaved in the first place. Um, is a, is a sense that um, uh, God's redemptive promise um, is, uh, is, is something for which human beings have to struggle and strive and work um, and is not, uh, it, it is not just handed on a silver platter, right? So the, the journey of life um, is to go through the hardships and the struggles um, and to, uh, uh, to, to never lose hope and to emerge on the other side. Um, so that's in part the reason why the Israelites are brought not directly into the land of Israel from Egyptian slavery, uh, but are brought uh, through the wilderness. Ultimately, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. Going back to this star of redemption, of creation, redemption, and revelation, um, uh, God, Torah, and Israel, um, that 40-year number that they're in the wilderness, um, for those of you in the room who are mothers, um, that, that probably should ring bells to you because what does 40 correspond to? Gestation. Good. Weeks of gestation, right? So this is the moment, the wilderness experience is the moment actually in which the Jewish people are starting to be formed as a people. They're growing as people. And central to that um, are two experiences. The first is um, Mount Sinai. Okay, so Mount Sinai is where uh, the you think thinking that the Torah is the story of God, Torah, and Israel, right? Mount Sinai is the experience of um, the of, of Jews actually meeting and interacting with and hearing from God and hearing um, God's instructions. So I've said before that the Torah is a is is a story that attempts to answer man's ultimate questions, but I was I hedged on that a little bit to say there's also a book of law, but the law always comes from stories. So the laws of the Torah are given at Mount Sinai according to the Torah. Um, but emerge from the narrative, 
right? So, so much of those laws are related to that story of creation, the interconnectivity of all human beings. So many of the laws are related to the experience of slavery 36 times in the Torah, in the laws of the Torah. It repeats the phrase, um, you should love the stranger, some variation of the phrase, you should love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not oppress the foreigner, you should not oppress um, uh, um, uh, uh, the orphan or the widow, for you know it, the, you know the heart of the stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So the the laws come from that narrative, come from that experience of um, uh, we are a people who have been oppressed. So our mission, our challenge, is to ensure that we build a society in which there's no oppression, in which there is as much equality as we can muster, um, and in which uh, we uh, help inspire the world to end all forms of subjugation and oppression. And the second experience, uh, which is related to Mount Sinai and is related to the other laws in the Torah, as well as the building of the tabernacle, which was a uh, portable sanctuary that the Israelites would carry around with them in the wilderness, in part to continue to keep that Sinai experience with them, right? It's impossible to kind of live at the spiritual highs all the time, right? So you couldn't stay at the mountain all the time. So the, the Torah paints a way for, for the Jewish people to kind of carry those experiences with them. So Heschel in his um, uh, quote here, he, he talks about um, uh, um, faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain. When religion only speaks in the name of authority rather than the, with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. But that's only half of the story. Because what Heschel knew intuitively is that those forms, that structure, right, the, 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 the past, the habits, the, um, the rituals, the practices, those are actually the vessels. Those are the containers of that revelatory experience at Sinai. My teacher, Rabbi Sharon Browse, um, gave a sermon. You can listen to it on, uh, on podcast um, over the high holidays called Fire on the Mountain, in which she argues, she paints this image of religion as a volcano. And there's that... Um, there's that like molten lava at the core of religion. That's the like fiery spark of religion. That's like a, the eternal message that's at the core of, of religion. The, 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 the love that's at the, that's the fundamental message of the Bible. The oneness that's the fundamental message of the Bible. The justice, the compassion that's the fundamental message. But that's the lava um, uh, underneath the mountain. And, and, and over time, the lava bubbles over and creates rock. You need that rock too because it creates the form and the structure of the mountain. But sometimes all you see is that cold rock and you don't see the lava underneath, right? So what she was arguing for is you need, Judaism today needs to uncover the molten lava and show people what's at, what's at the core um, and get past some of the rock. But the truth of the matter is that you need both. And so the second experience um, after Sinai of the Torah is how do we keep this experience of Sinai with us and how do we pass it on to our children? So the Torah creates a system of laws and practices and rituals that help um, contain the, the, the essence of that experience and enable us to keep it portable and take it with us. So we create a tabernacle, a portable structure um, that symbolizes God's presence, that mimics the experience of Sinai. We create rituals and practices, holidays, um, of which the Torah talks about, um, that, uh, that, that, that create the rhythm and the flow of, uh, of Jewish life, symbols that, uh, that uh, encapsulate those experiences and those messages and those lessons, and that's what we carry with us. But the Torah is, um, uh, in that wilderness narrative, in that, formation, that, that uh, formational period, 
is once again the story of constant flux of failure and redemption, failure and redemption of, um, of, of God's love, but also God's anger and ultimately God's forgiveness of the people. So much of the Torah, as it continues in the, in the Israelite sojourn in the wilderness after Sinai, is about the constant, consistent failure of the Jewish people to live up to the lofty ideals that are held up at, at, at Mount Sinai. And in fact, if you look at the rest of the Bible, it really, I think, in some ways unique among um, especially religious literature, but world literature, it's a story about us that spends most of its time talking about how we miss the mark. And in that sense, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a powerfully human story. Because what it says, by, by, by pointing that out, it says a number of things. It says that, um, uh, that it's okay to be flawed, because everybody is flawed. And we are always offered the opportunity to come back and to return. So the, one of the central ideas in Judaism is this concept called tshuva, which means return or sometimes repentance, right? And the, 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 uh, the, the fundamental Jewish disposition is that I may be astray, but I can, but I can always turn back. And one is never too far gone to turn back. And the story ends of the Torah um, at the edge of the wilderness, before the Israelites cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land. It's a radical story because you would think that it had talked all this time about God promised the land to Abraham, you're going to be enslaved, but it's going to be cool because you're going to get redeemed and you're going to go through the wilderness and that'll suck too, but then ultimately you're going to go into this land of milk and honey and everything's going to be a big party, but that's not where the story ends. The story ends before they cross in. Because I think ultimately what it's saying to us is that, you know, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? The purpose of life isn't the destination. The purpose of life is the journey. The purpose of life are the challenges and the struggles and the victories that we have that are always, in some senses, temporary. And we always slide back and then we always move forward. The Hasidic masters picked up on that theme and said that um, the, the, the essence of life is to never stay at one level. And a righteous person never stays, never satisfied with the level they're at. They're always moving backward, or they're always moving forward, but they're never staying at the level they are. Right? And the Torah encapsulates that. We don't cross over into the promised land. The Torah, that doesn't happen until the book of Joshua. What happens to the Torah is we're camped at the edge of the wilderness, and Moses dies. Because the journey is the journey. Because destination of our life is the grave. It's not the promised land, which we might end up getting to, but even there it's not always um, milk and honey for the Jewish people, as you see later on in the Bible. So the Torah takes us from creation to the edge of the wilderness. From the beginning of the world, from creation to redemption, to revelation, but note in that Redemption comes before revelation because the redemption is, in some senses, only a temporary redemption. And the move of the world, the picture that the Torah brings up, is that there's going to be moments of degradation and then, then moments of redemption. The trajectory of humanity is ultimately toward redemption. We may not ever see it in our time, 
right? We may only get to the edge of the wilderness, but we can always move forward, we can always move along, we can always get um, uh, even transitory redemptive moments that have hold within them the possibility for great revelations, helping maybe to move humanity toward the ultimate promised land, a promise of ultimate redemption.